You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Um, listen, I'm getting old. I'm tired today. I didn't sleep this weekend because we had a men and boys retreat, and, um, and I have planter fascism in my foot, uh, whatever that is, and, um, and I, I, don't, I can't get rid of it, and it hurts a lot. And so um, if you're like me and church is just hard this morning, it was hard to wake up and hard to get after it. Um, I just, I just want to remind you, I think the Lord's really pleased with the effort to uh, come out and worship Him, and if you just got here with bells on, good for you, happy for you, um, okay? <laughs> but all of us are getting older, amen? All of us are older today than we were yesterday, um, and the older you get, the, the older you feel, um, and it, it, you know, once I'm approaching the big 4-0, I'm really starting to feel that uh, physically. And um, not to be too morbid, but, but sometimes I, I think about like what my funeral will be like because I'm starting to think it's going to be sooner rather than later. Um, but I, I just imagine, you know, everyone that's, you know, really, really sad that I'm gone and how much they love me and all those things. And, um, and you know, I don't know if you're like me and you ever think about your funeral, but uh, at, at my funeral, I want, I want my wife, it, well, my wife's probably going to die before me, but, um, but I want my kids... We've talked about it. We've agreed on this. Um, I want my kids to know, you know that, that Jesus has saved me. Um, I want the legacy uh, that I leave behind to be gospel-centered. And, um, and as, as we think about things like that, I know it's a morbid thought. Uh, the Roman Empire, uh, generals in the Roman Empire, when they would march back into their cities um, in military parades celebrating victories, they would have slaves that marched beside them and whisper in their ears as the crowds were cheering them on, would remind them of their own mortality. Memento Mori would remind them that their death was going to come one day, that they weren't immortal, that they wouldn't live forever. And um, as we look at this chapter, we're going to be in chapter 35 of Genesis today, um, we kind of get to the end of Jacob's story. The way we've lined out the whole book of Genesis, we just preach through books of the Bible at our church. And we've lined it out in six different patriarchs that are kind of like six main characters of the book of Genesis. And it starts at Adam, moves to Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're finishing Jacob's story today. And he doesn't die in chapter 35. He's actually kind of carries on through the rest of the book um, because he plays a significant part in Joseph's story. But his son Joseph really becomes the main character, the protagonist. And so right, right here, Moses, as he writes in chapter 35, is wrapping up Jacob's life. And, and at the end of his life, what I want you to see is that there's, it's, it's clearly not perfection. He doesn't have all his ducks in a row, um, but you see God's faithfulness, not his own. You see actually unfaithfulness from Jacob, but you see God's faithful uh, pursuit of him, perseverance of him, and, and God's grace all around his life. And when we come to our own funerals, I, I, I pray that that's the case. I don't, I don't want, um, you know, when I die, I don't want someone giving the eulogy to tell about all the bad things I did. Nobody wants that, right? But I also don't want people to think I was perfect. Um, I just want people to know that I serve a perfect Jesus and that, that his grace holds me in my imperfections. And so that's what I want, to, want you to see in today's sermon. I have three points. Uh, first, we'll see that Jacob is outside of God's plan, that he's just um, contrary to where God actually told him to be. Um, but even in spite of that, we'll see that he's still within God's promise. So point one, outside of God's plan. Point two, within God's promise. And point three, we'll see pursuing gospel permanence, how, um, how God continues to graciously allow uh, Jacob and his family um, to walk in, in God's sovereign kingdom, okay? All right, point number one, outside of God's plan. 
Again, Jacob is really good at this. If you uh, have been following along with our sermon series, you know that Jacob is a scoundrel, that he is, um, he is he's really just the worst. Uh, he's, he's one of the worst uh, patriarchal type elect uh, characters in scripture. And he's, he's really good at being halfway in God's plan. And as it turns out, Jacob uh, really never should have been in this place Shechem to begin with. Last week in chapter 34, I dealt with the story of uh, Jacob's daughter Dinah being raped. And that happened in a place called Shechem. And Shechem was uh, actually a prince in the place. The city was named after him. And he's the one who raped Dinah. And if you remember, Jacob had bought land there. He had settled there and bought permanence and dwelled there. And what we come to find out is that that was really not where he was supposed to be in the first place. We see in, in the very first verse of chapter 35, God says to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And, and so God here says, arise and go to Bethel. And, and this is the first indication that that's where he should have been all along. And the clues were actually previously in the book because we see that in Genesis 28, 13 when, um, when Jacob was originally at Bethel. Remember, that's where God appeared to him the first time. We see Jacob's ladder or stairway. And, and in that chapter is where God says to him, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. That's where God appeared. It should have been natural for Jacob to go back. Furthermore, though, when God told Jacob to leave Haran and return to the promised land, God introduces himself as the God of Bethel. That's his title that he gives to himself in Genesis 31. He says, I'm the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. And so what we learn from this is that Jacob should have known that when he journeyed back, he was so fearful of Esau that he, he went where he wanted to to get away from Esau, but where he should have been going was Bethel. And that he would have avoided the whole mess of chapter 34 and the rape of his daughter and all of these terrible things, the annihilation of the city of Shechem, all of those things would have been avoided had he followed God's plan. But I'm sure if Jacob were here and we were to ask him, why didn't you follow God's plan? He would have said, I followed God's plan. I went back to the promised land. I had a very comfortable life in Haran, and I left all of that to go back to the land of Israel. You see, he was in the right country, but he wasn't in the right city. And what I want you to learn from this this morning is that many of you can be close enough to God's plan that you can convince yourself that you're in it when in fact you're not. It's easy for us to look at our lives and be like, well, I go to church most Sundays, right? Um, and, and you can be in the right place without being in God's plan. You can look at your life and say, I go to church every Sunday. I have to be in God's will. But you can show up Sunday after Sunday and be far from God's will for your life. By outward appearances, people might look at your life they might see that you, you go to church faithfully. They might see that you, you, know, you share Obi-Wan Kenobi on Facebook when you think it's Jesus and type amen and all those things. They might, they might see those things and think outwardly you are a very religious looking person or might even look at you and spiritually think, man, he's killing it. But in reality, you're killing your own soul because you're not actually walking in God's plan for your life. And you convince yourself you're okay because you say, I'm in the right place. I'm in the right spaces. I go to church. I read my Bible and I pray. But in reality, you've neglected to give your whole heart over to Jesus. 
You've neglected to follow him, whatever the cost may be. And inwardly, you're killing your soul. You see, the Great Commission is our marching orders that is given to us by Jesus. In Matthew 28, he gathers his disciples together. He says, all authority has been given unto me, heaven and on earth. And, and he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I'm with you to the end of the age. And as Jesus gives that great commission, it's important that we understand what he's telling us. In the Greek language, when it says go, it actually means as you are going. And this is rightly taught, but I think we misapply it to our lives. That when the Great Commission tells us, as you are going, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them, we think, oh, that just means I get to plan my own route, and then as I go on that route, I need to make Christians along the way, make disciples along the way. And so what we do is we choose what we think our best career is. We choose what place we want to live. We choose what person we want to marry. We, we make all the choices we get the menu, we check all the boxes, we get everything we want, we plan out our entire life, and then we say, okay, I'm going to bring the gospel along with me. When the picture of the Bible is, what if the gospel was the roadmap for your life? What if you were willing to sacrifice things that you thought were very good and things that you desired, and you were willing to lay them down to go to a place that you might not necessarily want to go, but the Lord has laid out for you? Here you see Jacob only gets halfway in the will of God. And my biggest fear is not having a small church, but it's having a big church full of people only halfway in the will of God. You see, if you only halfway pursue this gospel thing, you will have a passionate part of your life some, in some way. You will have something you worship in some way. And you, because you've been created to worship, you will worship something. And if it's not Jesus, and if it's not the marching orders of the gospel, then it will be something else. This week, someone sent me a sermon from Matt Chandler, and he said, you're already tithing to something if you look at your bank account. You're already worshiping something. It's there because you're designed and made to worship. And so what's Jacob done? Not only has he gone the wrong place, he's worshiping other gods. He, he, he might acknowledge that the one true God is the best God, but he hasn't put to death other gods. Verse 2 says, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. What in the world are they doing with those things? Put away the idols that you have? They literally and physically had these golden engraven images that they were worshiping and praying to, I'm sure that Jacob was participating in this, and here he becomes holier than thou, and he says, hey, we've got to put those away because God showed up. They weren't where they were supposed to be, and they weren't worshiping who they were supposed to worship. If you remember in chapter 31, Rachel had stolen idols from her father. One of my new favorite stories of the Bible, Nicole taught it to me at small group. I had completely forgot this from Sunday school. They probably didn't teach it. But, uh, but Rachel steals these idols and she sits on them. And then when her father comes in looking for them, she says, I'm on my period. I can't stand up and, and tricks her dad, lies to her dad. And so she steals these idols. And we don't really know Rachel's motivation here, um, whether she was just trying to get them out of her father's house, whether it was for financial gain or whether she wanted to be able to pray to them and worship them um, or some combination of all of those things. But they had taken them with them to God's promised land, these false gods to worship. 
Furthermore, they had killed every man in the city of Shechem, creating a massive societal problem of orphans and widows, and they had plundered their homes and taken whatever false gods they had for themselves, they had taken them as well. And so now they have this giant collection of idols that they're worshiping, and God shows up and says, meet me at Bethel. And Jacob's like, hey, you got to get rid of those guys. Verse 3 says, let us arise and go to Bethel that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Now even here, I feel like Jacob's only still being halfway obedient. He listens to God's command to go to Bethel. When God shows up, he says, we're going to go to Bethel. But notice how holy he becomes in his language. He says, I'm going to make an altar to the God who answers me and has gone wherever I've gone. He really just sounds like this ultra-religious guy who's done everything right. And he says, hey, you need to get rid of these idols. Bring them to me. We're going to get rid of them. And he listens to God's command to go to Bethel, but God didn't even mention the idol worship, didn't mention the false gods. And Jacob here gathers them like like a kid that's been caught doing something wrong. And like a kid with a dirty magazine, he goes and he hides it. And I don't really think he hides it so he can get rid of it forever, but it's so that he can return to it eventually. Um, He doesn't destroy them like we've seen happen in other parts of the Bible. There are other parts of the Bible that will melt these um, statues down and just utterly destroy them. He doesn't do that. Instead, he, he hides them under the tree. You see, it would be easy for me to assume that I'm preaching to the choir today, that because you have made the effort to attend church, that you're not hiding idols in your life. It would be easy for me to assume that because you're here, you're walking in God's plan, but I've seen way too many stories of sinful people in the Bible and sinful people like myself in my own life as an example that do outward things worshiping God, and maybe I really want to worship God, but I'm still harboring these hidden idols that I've kept back for a rainy day. Ask yourself this morning, what have you hidden from everyone else around you, but in reality, you know you're just keeping it for a rainy day when you need to revert back to that sin, that vice, that pleasure. God knows where you've hidden it. God knows where it is. The Hebrew word used to describe Jacob's action, the word translated hide, that he hid them under the tree, could also be translated as bury, meaning that like a pirate would bury a treasure so that he could come back to it later. Jacob here digs a hole and he buries these idols under this tree. You see, the sins and vices you have buried out of sight in your soul, they need to be buried permanently in a grave. Not so you can go back to them whenever you're lonely or stressed out or seeking pleasure, but buried in a sense that you will never return to them again. And you can go through the motions, and you can be in church, and you can be in the right place, but you can still have these things that you treasure that God has commanded be destroyed. You cannot live in God's plan and promise without destroying your idols. That's what he calls us to as believers. So there we see Jacob is outside of God's plan, but point two is this incredible grace that he's still within God's promise. We look at Jacob's story and we're just like, this isn't fair. This guy's a scoundrel and he still gets to be the elect son of God. What in the world's going on? The incredible grace of Jacob's story is that God doesn't give up on him. And as frustrated as I get reading Jacob's story with how, how despicable Jacob is, it is a beautiful reminder, number one, of how despicable I am, but how God will never give up on me. If he doesn't give up on Jacob, he's not giving up on you, I promise. 
And through all of the deplorable things that Jacob does, God never gets frustrated and says, you know what, I'm going to find a new elect family. Abraham did okay, Isaac did all right, but Jacob just ain't living up to the standard of my covenant family and my nation that I'm establishing. I'm going to find someone else. He never gives up on him. God remains faithful in the covenant promise. I do, um, I, I could be a wedding planner at this point with how many weddings I do. It's sort of embarrassing. And um, we're getting ready, I'm getting ready to do a wedding next month. And when, when we do a wedding, we always, we always have the vows, right? You, you recite your vows to one another. They're, they're essentially promises that you make in front of witnesses and before God. Um, I hate when pastors ask if anyone objects. Why did old school pastors always do that? That's not in any law. I like saying by the power vested in me, that's really cool. I got to keep that in there. I love that part. Um, but, man, those pastors that was like, if anybody has any reason, man, they're just asking for it. Like, if you have any reason to object, I just don't care. I don't want to deal with that at a wedding ceremony, okay? Um, but but when, those, when that bride and the groom is standing up in front of a crowd of people and they say their wedding vows to one another... They promise to remain faithful and to love unconditionally. And one of the lines that's usually in the vows is for better or for worse. And most people, when they hear that vow, they think of it in terms of this. For better, meaning we get more money. And worse, meaning we have less money. Better, meaning we're really healthy and we, and, and we succeed. Uh, and worse, meaning we have planter fascism. Um, and we get old and we struggle. Okay? <laughs> what people don't think about is that promise for better or for worse means if the, if the person you're making a vow to gets better or worse. Now, let me just say, my wife is like a fine wine. She's definitely getting better. But from her point of view, I think it's looking worse, like the longer she's in this. And I just got a reminder, your vow meant that even if I get worse, you've promised to remain faithful here. And this is a beautiful picture of God's covenant to us because even when we have our worst days and even when we fail, his has said in Hebrew, which means a steadfast love, covenant love, it is upon us, holding us in the covenant. And it's a one-sided covenant with God. It's not that we have to unconditionally step up and, and do everything right. It's that he unconditionally holds us in his family through the blood and the work of Jesus Christ. Look at what happens in verse 5. Even though Jacob has, like God has every right to just let Jacob run, run out on his own and get destroyed. He's fearful of the people of the land. And it says, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And so Jacob gets to where God wants him to be easily when he should have been pursued because of the trouble that he brought to the land, should have been killed, he gets there without, without a hiccup. Um, at this retreat that me and my sons went to this past weekend, uh, we played football, which is a bad idea when you have planter fascism. And uh, I was all-time quarterback, so I didn't have to run as much, obviously. And, um, and so we'd, we're gathering up the teams, and they decide they want to play tackle. And I'm like, I don't know if this is a good idea. Nobody has pads. And they're just like, whatever, old man. And so there they are tackling each other. And so we're playing the game, and everything's going okay. There aren't too many broken bones. And then this young man named Eli comes over, and he's six years old. And we're playing with, like, middle school boys. 
And um, some of them are like as big as me. And so Eli's going to play. And so we, as he's coming over, we made a rule that Eli was two-hand touch. Like you, couldn't, you can't tackle the six-year-old. That's not cool. Um, but when Eli came in the game, we didn't tell him that. And so for Eli, in his mind, it was tackle. And so when he gets the ball, his eyes are like he's scared to death because <laughs> he, he is literally running for his life, not a touchdown. Um, but he's also in on the tackles and stuff too. And this is what I imagine Jacob being like, eyes wide, like what's going to happen? But God's like, I've called it off, man. You're safe. You're secure. Nothing's going to happen to you. But like Eli's ready to try out for the NFL. And I'm like, bro, I don't know that you should, you should go for it. You're not that big. But, um, but this is a picture of God's protection of his elect. Now listen, I understand that life is hard and there are physical ailments that come to you. There are torments and persecutions and life is full of sorrow and full of grief. But spiritually speaking, nothing can touch us if we're in Christ. Amen. Nothing. Romans 8, Paul writes, he says, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing can separate us from this covenant love that God has bestowed upon us who have placed our hope in Jesus Christ. That's why so often in the Bible we're described as children of God. So much of walking in Christ is like being a kid. You ever look at kids and just get mad because they don't have responsibilities? Maybe it's just me. I look at kids and I'm just like, I can't stand you because you have nothing to worry about and I have lots to worry about. And then they cry all the time like they've got problems, you know? They, they don't understand, right? But spiritually, you know what you're compared to? A child. You don't, you don't have to stress about your salvation. God has obtained it and given it to you freely. Jesus bled out on the cross suffered so you wouldn't have to, took the wrath of the Father upon himself so that you would not be eternally damned and separated from him, rose from the dead to promise you that whatever comes in this life, you will be with God forever. So spiritually, you can be like a kid. You're freeloading. Isn't that great? That's what it means to be a child of God. And here God shows up to remind Jacob of this. In verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Padanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called him Israel. Now remember in chapter 28, God had showed up. Jesus, a theophany, appearing of God the Son in the Old Testament, pre-incarnate, before he's born in Bethlehem. And Jesus comes and he wrestles with Jacob and, and he tells Jacob at that encounter, after he wrestles all night with him, puts his hip out of socket, he tells him that night, your name will now be Israel because you have wrestled with God or struggled with God or striven with God. The name Israel is, is a compound Hebrew word of Sarah and El, which means struggle God. And he says, this is going to be your name and this is going to be the, the descendants from you, the nation that will come from you, this is their name as well, Israel. And why does he say it again here? Why does he have another ceremony where he presents a new name to Jacob? Well, the reason is because Jacob hadn't yet started living like Israel. See, Jacob meant deceiver or usurper or trickster. And he was still living like that. He was still trying to get by on his own strength, by his own talents. And in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul very clearly lays out that we who are in Christ 
are adopted into the family of Israel, that we spiritually are Israel even if we weren't born Jewish. That the beauty of this picture is that, that the name Israel changes from fighting with God to God fighting for us that God struggles on our behalf, that the very act of becoming a Christian means that the fight is over for us. There's nothing left for us to war against because Jesus has won the war for us on the cross. And the symbolic language of a new name is said of all God's children. We see it in Revelation chapter 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You see, your spiritual identity is yours right now, and you're called to walk as a child of God today. You're you're a representative of heaven on earth, and you need to act like it. Sometimes I'll say that to my kids. You need to act like it. You're a Basham. Act like it. Now, our name carries some kind of weight because everyone knows Bashams are respectable and honorable people, right? In in the office uh, this week, my kids were were in the office, and uh, it was was my kids plus uh, Colton Ball. Uh, Jeremy and Leslie's youngest son. And I said, hey, Basham kids, we got to go. And I was just trying to get my kids away from Colton and his bad influence. And so <laughs> I said, hey, Basham kids. But Colton perceived it as, as me calling him a Basham kid. And here's what he said to me. He said, you called me a Basham kid. That hurt my feelings in my mind. I don't know what that means. But I think he lost sleep over that. Uh, that hurt my feelings in my mind that you called me a Basham. <laughs> so what I viewed as a high honor, you know, receiving that name, evidently Colton didn't agree with that. But when God gives a name, when the, when the Heavenly Father gives a name, it is a name indicative of how we are to live. We don't live to earn the name, but because we've been given the name, we live in light of the name. And God reminds Jacob of what his real name is. It's Israel. It's one who doesn't have to fight anymore. It's one who admits his faults and weaknesses and hits his knees before he flexes, understanding that God fights for him. Not only does God remind Israel of his new name, but God reminds Israel of God's name as well. In verse 11, God says to him, I am God Almighty. Hebrew, El Shaddai. El Shaddai means God can do anything, or God is all-powerful. And so what, what he speaks to here by referring to himself as El Shaddai, God is saying to Jacob, your name is Israel, meaning God will fight for you. And also, I know your doubt. I know about all those idols you've hidden under the terebinth tree back in Shechem, just in case I don't come through for you. You've got some other gods you can go pray to. You've got some other things you can bow down to. You've got plan B, C, D, and E all lined up for you. But let me tell you, I am El Shaddai. I can do everything. Nothing can stop me. God had described himself as El Shaddai one other time at this point. It was to Abraham in Genesis 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. This is significant because it shows the continuity of God's promise. The same thing that he revealed himself as and told to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, he says to him, now you're Israel and I am God Almighty. Trust in me, not yourself. And that is the essence of the gospel. As Christians, we carry this message of trust in God and stop trusting in yourself. That's what makes us stand out from every other world religion. It is not about you. It's about him. 
And this legacy we pass on from generation to generation, just as these uh, fathers in Genesis did as well. God gives the command in verse 11, Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. You see, the unconditional promise from God in the Abrahamic covenant is unchanged. He reminds Jacob of it. He says, yours already are descendants and land, and in light of that, be fruitful and multiply. God's promise is unchanging, and so is his command. Be fruitful and multiply. It's the same command that was given at the very beginning when we first started this book early in the year. Genesis 1.28, God creates Adam and Eve, and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and, and subdue it. He destroys sinners in, uh, in Noah's family. He saves them through the ark. And when they get off of the boat, the first thing he says in Genesis 9-1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He promises to multiply descendants to Abraham. In Genesis 22-17, he says, I'll bless you and multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And here in Genesis 35, he gives the same command, reiterating it over and over and over again to Israel. Be fruitful and multiply. And wouldn't you know it? We're given the same command. In the Great Commission, we're told to go and multiply disciples. In Acts chapter 9, the church is said to have um, been persecuted. It says in verse 31, the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. That God in his grace continues to work through his people through all times and all places for his glory, bringing about fruit and multiplication. And so that's why we pursue gospel permanence, point three. That, that as messy as our lives may be, probably most of us are not as, as messed up as Jacob, but some of you might be. Some of y'all might give Jacob a run for his money. But what we see is that even the, the craziest of us are, are still prime candidates for God to do amazing and wonderful things. And most of our life is an ebb and a flow, right? We have good seasons and we have bad seasons and we have ups and we have downs. And the same is true of Jacob. He had moments where he really hit home runs and did well. But he had a lot of failures as well, and we see it in his children as well. He has one other child in verse 16. Uh, it says, They journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor. She had hard labor. When her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. This is his twelfth son. Benoni means son of sorrow. Jacob, being the scoundrel that he is, can't even let Rachel have her dying wish. And he's like, well, you were close, honey. Farewell, but I'm going to change his name to Benjamin. Uh, Benjamin means son of my right hand, a, a title of honor. But even in this, Jacob gets his own son's name wrong for the Benjamites. The tribe of Benjamin will go on to be, become famous warriors. You know what they're famous for? Fighting with their left hand. <laughs> so I just love the, God's, God's humor here that, uh, that even in this, Jacob, Jacob gets it wrong. His oldest son, Reuben, commits a horrible sin in verse 22. Israel lived in that land. Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So you have the... The, the birth of another son, the joy of that, while at the same time the, the, the agony and the grief of losing his lifelong love, Rachel, and her death at the time of birth. You have this unspeakable sin that comes 
at the hands of Reuben, his oldest son, and, and you, so you see rebellion from his children. And then in 28, he has to grieve the loss of his father. It says the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. His sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So Jacob also has to go to the funeral of his dad and see Esau. Remember, he said he would meet him and Sarah, and he never went. And Esau probably brought that up, and he's like, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll get down there when i got a chance, man. Been busy, like we all do at funerals. It's really kind of a sad ending of Jacob's life. It's like everything he loves begins to slip away from him. Sadly, this is, this is kind of the story of all of us, right? If we're blessed to live long enough, we will see a lot of death. The more we live, the more death we see. It's a cycle. It's a heartbreaking reality. But it's one that's at the center of the whole narrative of the Bible. It's, it's what God is rescuing us from. The cycle of life and death and life and death. Look at verse 19. It says, So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, a place you might have heard of. Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adair. I don't know if you caught it, but what changed from verse 20 to verse 21? In verse 20, Moses, who's writing this, records that Jacob buries his wife, but in verse 21, he records that Israel journeyed on. His name changes from verse 20 to 21. And it almost seems like finally, at the end of his story, he's got it figured out that as much as he toiled and as much as he tried, he could not control his circumstances he couldn't keep his kids in line. He couldn't do enough right. And it was finally at the very end when he just saw nothing but death around him. I'm going to let the Lord lead. I'm going to let the Lord be in charge of all things. Jacob buried his wife, but Israel journeyed on. And where's Israel going? He's going to this place anciently known as Ephrath. Verse 19 tells us that is Bethlehem. I think there's just this beautiful significance of where they're journeying to, where Israel is heading to, is he's walking to the very place that we celebrate every Advent, every Christmas, every December, where we celebrate the incarnation where God became man. You see, Rachel's dying in childbirth reminds us of this painful cycle of life and death, life and death, and all are born to die. We come from dust and we return to dust, but one silent night in Bethlehem, a scream would break through that interrupts that deathly cycle. Another childbirth would change everything for all humanity. God himself would be born to grow up to live the sinless life none of us could, to be sacrificed as God's perfect lamb on a cross, to be buried in a tomb, to raise on the third day, to deliver us from this deathly cycle. God himself would come and break it. Jesus' interruption to the cycle of depravity is what we cling to today as Christians. And if you're outside of that, let me just ask you, what are you waiting for? I pray that you've seen God revealing himself through his word and through the circumstances of your life and the people in your life. If you've yet to give your soul over to him, stop hiding the things that you worship and put them to death. Worship Jesus and him alone. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. 
To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.